A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. On Friday, July 14th, 1995, daycare owner Margaret Ortiz had 10 young children under her care. As she watched the temperature climb to 102 degrees Fahrenheit, she decided to take the children to a movie in an air-conditioned cinema. They piled into a van and drove to the theater. When the movie ended, Margaret brought all the kids back to the daycare. Everyone was exhausted from the heat, and many of the kids took a nap as soon as they returned. Eventually, Margaret fell asleep too. More than 90 minutes passed before Margaret woke up and returned to the van in the driveway, preparing to pick up more kids from a nearby day camp. The kids climbed into the back seat and made a horrifying discovery. Two three-year-old boys had been left inside the van after the movie. As quickly as she could, Margaret carried the two limp children back inside and called 911. But the boys were already dead. When the paramedics arrived, they discovered that the two small corpses had body temperatures of 107 and 108 degrees. The next day, 186 more Chicago residents would be dead. The heat wave had claimed its first victims. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Bill. And I'm Kate. Every Monday, we'll explore moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the deadly heat wave that struck Chicago in July of 1995. The extreme temperatures lasted for five days. At the end of the week, 
Almost 600 people were dead from heat-related causes. This week, we'll explore the warnings and weather patterns that preceded the heat wave. We'll also hear about emergency services in Chicago that were wholly unprepared for a killer heat wave, as well as the terrible circumstances many victims were already in before the heat arrived. Next week, we'll relive the day-by-day stories of the victims and heroes of the Chicago heat wave and what measures have been taken since to prevent tragedy from returning to the city. Heat waves are nature's quiet killers. It's often difficult to identify symptoms of heat exposure at first glance. Most victims succumb only after long exposure to heat, and they leave no obvious external trauma, unlike the victims of avalanches, tsunamis, or other violent natural events. But a heat wave is just as deadly. Over 650 people die every year due to complications from heat exposure in the United States. Heat waves reportedly killed more people than tornadoes, floods, or hurricanes combined. When someone is subjected to extreme heat for a prolonged period of time, the body is unable to cool itself to normal temperature fast enough. This is called hyperthermia. The human body regulates its temperature by sweating, releasing heat as the sweat evaporates. If there is not enough water in the body, or if the external air is too humid, sweat can't form or evaporate efficiently, and the body temperature rises very quickly. As hyperthermia sets in, the body begins to suffer from heat exhaustion. Victims complain of headaches or nausea and sometimes faint. They continue to sweat profusely and very quickly become dehydrated. Once the victim's internal body temperature is over 103 degrees Fahrenheit, they experience heat stroke. The skin stops sweating due to lack of fluid in the body, and the victim is struck with terrible headaches and dizziness. They become delirious or fall unconscious. Any pre-existing conditions like heart disease or reduced mobility put an individual at an increased risk for death during a heat wave. As the pulse quickens and dehydration sets in, these conditions worsen, often resulting in heart attacks. Many victims of heat waves are young children. Their small bodies are less capable of regulating temperature for extended periods of time. Elderly people are also at high risk. They often have complicating factors that lead severe symptoms to develop more quickly. The only hope for treatment during extreme heat is consistent hydration and cooling the body temperature as quickly as possible. When someone dies of heat stroke or exhaustion, it's not always reported correctly to public health agencies that track deaths. This is another reason why extreme heat is one of the most dangerous phenomena in nature, as the mortality rate is often higher than anyone realizes. But despite all of this, heat waves are some of the most predictable and cyclical natural disasters on the planet. Heat waves strike most commonly during the summer months in both hemispheres. The weather systems that produce heat waves develop over the course of days and can be forecast far ahead of time. 
That being said, while some regions are more susceptible to extreme heat than others, heat waves can strike anywhere on Earth. Such was the case in London in 1858. What made this wave even worse was the fact that the city was without a proper sewage system. Most people's toilets emptied into the River Thames. When a heat wave struck that summer, the stench was unbearable. And as temperatures increased, the growth of bacteria increased exponentially in the noxious sludge of sewage and river water. These bacteria gave off an odor like an open, dirty toilet. The smell was so terrible that curtains soaked in chloride were hung from the windows of government buildings to alleviate the stench from the river. The Thames was also a major water source for many of the city's inhabitants. When the high temperatures encouraged the growth of bacterial diseases in the water, thousands of people grew sick and died from cholera and typhoid. Almost 40 years later, in 1896, a heat wave struck the other side of the Atlantic, settling over New York City. A ban on sleeping outside left people crammed indoors. Many resorted to sleeping on rooftops and fire escapes in the slightly cooler night air, and an estimated 1,500 people died from the heat indoors or from falling off roofs as they slept outside. More recently, in 2003, a terrible heat wave struck continental Europe. The months of July and August saw soaring temperatures as the continent experienced the hottest summer in five centuries. More than 70,000 people died due to the heat, with 14,000 of them in France alone. However, in the summer of 1995, temperatures were average in Chicago. Throughout June and early July, it was shaping up to be a regular summer. Going into the second week of July, nobody anticipated that hundreds of people would be dead by the weekend. The city of Chicago had a population of almost 3 million people in 1995 and sprawled over 200 square miles. The buildings spread throughout the city were often built in close proximity and much of the ground was paved with dark asphalt. Both of these factors increased air temperatures on sunny days, trapping heat inside the maze of buildings. Heat waves were not unheard of in the city in the decades before 1995. There were many summers in the past that were so hot that people took to sleeping outside. In an interview with sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, Eugene Richards, a longtime resident of the North Lawndale neighborhood in Chicago, recalled that in the 1940s and 50s, quote, when it got hot, the whole block would go to Garfield Park and sleep outside. We'd take out blankets and pillows. People would sleep on benches or in the grass. But the makeup of the city has changed in the 40 years since then. In 1995, nobody dared to sleep in the parks due to increased crime rates. And in general, the city was now a more segregated, isolated place. The population of Chicago has always been very diverse due to a continental influx of immigrants. Because of this frequent migration into the city, the population is often divided into neighborhoods of similar cultures, languages, and origins. Unfortunately, this also leads to stark divisions within the city's distribution of services. 
even to this day. For example, many neighborhoods on the south side have higher crime rates than the rest of the city because there are fewer police precincts. However, in 1995, these areas on the south side also contained some of the oldest populations in the city, including people who had lived in the same apartments for decades. These populations were largely black, Latino, and elderly. While elderly people were already one of the populations most vulnerable to heat, the fear of crime kept many of them inside their apartments with their doors locked. They made this choice to keep themselves safe, but it would prove deadly over the extremely hot weekend of July 13th. There is more public housing on the south side of Chicago than any other area of the city, and many of the people living in these apartments have limited income. This includes senior citizens living off pensions and people with varying disabilities. These public housing options rarely provided any air conditioning. Furthermore, if Southside residents missed paying their bills, they could have their water or electricity shut off. A large swath of these southern neighborhoods also suffered from a lack of public services, including limited fire department and police presence. As crime rates increased on the south side, the police force was stretched thin. These factors left much of the southern half of the city woefully unprepared for a citywide disaster. When the heat wave struck, the majority of fatalities would occur on the south side. Those fatalities were cataloged and autopsied under the oversight of Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue. Donahue grew up in a prominent Chicago family that was heavily involved in politics. Throughout his life, he had seen how the city administration could be terribly inefficient. He was also deeply familiar with the dangers of heat. He had seen many heat-related deaths throughout his career in Chicago, so he knew firsthand how heat killed slowly and invisibly. Donahue knew that the evidence of heat-related death was not only in the body, but also within the environment around it. For example, a person found in a locked apartment with all the windows closed after a hot day should be investigated to determine if their cause of death was heat-related. However, the medical examiner was very rarely the person doing the investigating at the scene. This job was often left to the police who discovered the body. Donahue knew there had to be clear criteria to attribute a death to extreme heat, so that anyone discovering a body or investigating a death could reach a firm conclusion about how the victim died. So he established three criteria. First, quote, a body temperature of 105 degrees at the time of death. Second, substantial environmental evidence, such as the body being found in a hot room with no windows. Or third, the victim was found in a decomposed state without evidence of other causes of death and was last seen alive during the heat wave. If a body that was brought to the county morgue fit one of these criteria, then the death could be attributed to heat. This was the only way to separate the increased number of heat deaths from the deaths that occurred due to natural causes. 
With these rules in place, Donahue prepared for a massive influx of heat fatalities as the temperatures rose. But he had no way of knowing how many bodies would eventually pile up outside the morgue or how much controversy his medical examinations would cause. As dawn broke on Wednesday, July 12th, the weather in Chicago seemed normal. In fact, the temperatures and weather had been quite average so far that season. The only notable phenomenon was the complete lack of clouds in the sky. But this was actually a sign of a dangerous weather pattern. During the warm summer months, a weather system called an anticyclone is a common occurrence over the central plains of North America. These massive systems have high pressure centers pushing air out instead of pulling it in. They often bring hot air with temperatures of over 100 degrees. Adding to the dangers of the anticyclone was the lack of cool air from Lake Michigan. Chicago is built along the southwestern shore of the Great Lake. This usually leads to a weather phenomenon known as Lake Breeze, which describes air moving off of the enormous body of water and pushing against the rotating air of an anticyclone. This breeze keeps high temperature air from settling over the city. But on July 12th, the lake breeze was very weak and the high pressure hot air of the anticyclone moved in over the city, keeping the clouds from forming. The air temperatures were rising close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, the people of Chicago were hearing the first warnings about the potentially fatal temperatures coming their way. But the warnings had come too late. In the next 72 hours, many would be dead and decomposing in the heat. Next, we'll follow some of the residents of Chicago as they fail to prepare for the heat wave. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. The week of July 12, 1995, was about to become one of the most deadly in Chicago's history. High-pressure weather systems, thinly stretched public services, 
and impoverished communities meant the city was vulnerable to a heat wave. That Wednesday morning, the Chicago Sun-Times ran a story on page three about a possible heat wave in the coming days. This was unusual. Weather had its own section of the paper. For a story to break into the front pages of the news section, it had to be serious. The headline read, heat wave on the way and it can be killer. The forecasters were predicting that temperatures would exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 48 hours straight. But Joseph Lasko wasn't worried. He'd seen weather forecasts like that before. He piled that day's paper on top of the hundreds of old newspapers he collected over the years. Then he diligently recorded the daily temperature and any interesting news stories in his journal. The 68-year-old Hungarian lived by himself on the northwest side of Chicago. His apartment was a treasure trove of old phone books, newspapers, broken electronics, and ancient letters. Lasko didn't have many friends or neighbors, and his distant family were all back in Hungary. He hadn't received any correspondence from them since the 1980s. He was living in poverty and had less than $1,000 in his bank account. There were thousands of solitary elderly citizens like him all across Chicago. Many of them had full apartments of memorabilia and junk, but no money to afford air conditioning or to travel during the hot summer months. Some hadn't left their homes in years. Pauline Jankowitz lived a few miles to the east of Joseph Lasko. She was in her late 70s, and she had stayed in the same apartment for 30 years. Her neighborhood had changed significantly over the decades. This phenomenon is called aging in place. It describes a common situation in which an elderly person stays in the same home and has stagnant income while the cost of living rises and the neighborhood demographics change around them. Pauline's neighborhood had been filled with largely white immigrants when she moved in. But in 1995, the apartments around her were mostly filled with Asian and Mexican families. She felt isolated from the community, even though she had no quarrels with any of her new neighbors. She said, they're good people, I just don't know them. Pauline was lonely, but she was afraid to go outside. She heard the news reports about rising crime rates every day. She was anxious about her ability to avoid danger outside her apartment. Her infirmities, including needing a crutch to walk, left her with reduced mobility. Pauline knew she was vulnerable if she went outside alone. In her interview with Kleinenberg, she said, Chicago is a shooting gallery, and I am a moving target because I walk so slowly. I go out of my apartment about six times a year. As the heat wave descended on the city, its effect would prove more dangerous to Pauline than a bullet ever could be. Temperatures continued to climb rapidly throughout the day on Wednesday the 12th. By midday, the temperature peaked at 97 degrees. As the heat became unbearable, people without air conditioning looked for creative ways to cool down. The most popular way was also the most illegal. 
In many neighborhoods, young people cracked open fire hydrants, spewing thousands of gallons of high-pressure water into the air. These teenagers didn't know that their innocent attempts to cool down would have citywide consequences. As fire hydrants throughout the city were wrenched open, more water spilled out of the public water system, and the pressure began to drop. Many buildings lost water completely, and people couldn't even flush the toilet. Soon, the fire department wouldn't be able to use their hoses to put out fires. Police began to move in on the impromptu block parties that gathered around the broken hydrants. They protected city workers as they closed the hydrants and forced people away from the area. However, this didn't stop groups of teenagers from returning to the hydrants or finding new ones to break open. Eventually, the city put an order in effect to crack down on the teens and sent over a hundred crews from the water department to roam the city and find open hydrants. But the communities enjoying the cooling water weren't so happy to see the hydrants shut off. People threw rocks and bricks at the city trucks as they arrived, shouting at workers to let the water keep flowing. The city assigned police escorts to the water department teams. As the heat wave continued unabated, clashes between police and overheated young citizens turned violent. In some cases, police and teens exchanged gunfire over the broken hydrants. The newspapers were quick to write about the water war that had broken out in Chicago during the heat wave. At one point, over 3,000 fire hydrants were broken open in the city. The police had their hands full protecting the city workers. But the police department wasn't the only emergency service that was stretched past the breaking point. In 1995, there were 59 ambulances operating daily in Chicago. Three of them were permanently assigned to O'Hare International Airport, leaving 56 active ambulances for the rest of the city center. With an average response time of between four and seven minutes, every ambulance in the city was constantly busy throughout a normal day. If a catastrophe occurred, they would be quickly overwhelmed. Chicago also only had a total of 45 hospitals within the city limits to service a population nearing 3 million. In a crisis, many hospitals would run out of room. Over the years, critics and statistical studies had warned of two significant problems with the emergency medical infrastructure in the city. The first problem was that most of the hospitals, especially those with trauma centers capable of dealing with disaster victims, were concentrated on the north side of the city, leading to de facto segregation of emergency services. The second concern was that the 56 ambulances and the approximately 600 paramedics on the city payroll were not enough to handle a citywide catastrophe. The typical response time for paramedics was over 20 minutes on a busy day. During a disaster like the 1995 heat wave, ambulance response times could be up to an hour. Even if an ambulance came, sometimes the hospitals themselves would be overcrowded and unable to accept new patients. This status was called bypass. And if a hospital was on bypass, it would lock the doors and not allow any ambulances to drop off victims. 
paramedics would be forced to drive to distant hospitals that weren't on bypass. So during the heat wave, anyone suffering from hyperthermia who managed to get an ambulance was still in danger. The longer it took to lower their body temperature, the greater the risk of death. Paramedics and firefighters were susceptible to dehydration and heat stroke as well. Without a break from the heat, as they moved victims to hospitals or morgues, they risked hyperthermia themselves. By the mid-afternoon, temperatures in Chicago reached 97 degrees. This tied the city record for the hottest July 12th ever. 90,000 people went to the lakeside beaches that day to try and cool off in Lake Michigan. As the sun set in Chicago on the 12th, the temperatures stayed in the mid-80s. People with air conditioners ran them full blast. Fans and refrigerators all drew more power than normal as people tried to stay cool and keep their ice from melting and cold food from spoiling. This elevated the use of electricity across the city, which taxed the aging utility system. Some neighborhoods began to experience brownouts when the power would flicker and then shut off for a few hours. The city's utility provider, Commonwealth Edison, desperately and unsuccessfully tried to supply more power to the electrical grid. If the power usage continued to increase, they would have a citywide blackout. And if that happened, it could be several days before repairs were made. That night, the ABC affiliate station in Chicago reported a heat index still above 100 degrees. The heat index is a measure of temperature and humidity and is a more accurate representation of how the heat is affecting the human body than simple temperature readings. ABC meteorologist Jerry Taft made a final comment about the coming heat. He said, it's pretty amazing. The heat makes it feel like 100 degrees at 10 o'clock at night. Tomorrow will be a dangerous day for a lot of people. Unfortunately, nobody could have known just how right he was. Next, we'll hear about the first fatal day of the heat wave. Now, back to the story. On July 12, 1995, the heat was all anybody was talking about in Chicago. The local nightly news broadcasts had all featured the story. The forecast predicted three more days of sweltering heat, but the city government had taken no preventative actions, even when the high temperature had tied the historic record on the 12th. The next morning, the Chicago Tribune ran a story on the front page about the record heat the previous day. The article read, Stop your whining. So what if it got up to 97 degrees on Wednesday? For many, it was just a walk in the park. 68-year-old Joseph Lasko, inside his overstuffed apartment for the third consecutive day, dutifully wrote down the temperature forecast in his journal that morning it was going to be over 100 degrees. The humidity was also increasing by the hour. More hot air was blowing in from the southwest, and the normally cool lake breeze 
had ceased. The stagnant air was thick and heavy, and a smoky haze of pollution and humidity settled over the city. Back at his office, Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue was preparing for the worst. He had just received the first two victims of heat stroke, two young children who had been trapped in a van. A third victim was in a Southside hospital in critical condition. His body temperature was registering at 108 degrees. Donahue was worried. The county morgue had cold storage space for 222 bodies. On a typical July day in Chicago, an average of 72 people died and were processed by the morgue. While there had only been a few victims tied to the heat wave so far, there were still several days of high temperatures predicted over the weekend. He was certain there would be more deaths. And without more space and more staff, Donahue didn't know what he'd do with them. Across the city, people were suffering from the unabated heat. Anyone without air conditioning or who lived in a confined space found the heat unbearable and potentially dangerous. Many of the first victims were people who lived in single-room occupancies, or SROs. SROs are often converted hotels with limited space and amenities in each room. This is often the only cheap alternative to public housing or living on the street. Most of the people in SROs lived alone. It was difficult to fit a family in a single converted hotel room, and some of the buildings refused to rent individual rooms to groups. The landlords hoped this would prevent crime and unwelcome guests. However, this meant that life in SROs was extremely isolated. Not many people knew their neighbors in the next room, and some people preferred the isolation. When the heat wave struck, nobody knew anything was wrong until mail began to pile up outside on the doormat or a sickening smell wafted from beneath the door. Many people in SROs also had drug and alcohol abuse issues. Alcohol consumption is particularly dangerous during extreme heat because it leads to dehydration. Additionally, many drugs inhibit the body's ability to regulate temperature and can speed up the onset of hyperthermic illness. Emergency calls were increasing throughout the day on Thursday, most noticeably in the poorest parts of the city. People in SROs and solitary apartments were told that they would have to wait for ambulances to be dispatched. The city emergency plan suggested opening air-conditioned municipal buildings to the public as cooling stations. However, the city government was still unconvinced that the extreme heat would result in a crisis. In a press conference, Mayor Richard Daly said, quote, It's hot. We all have our little problems, but let's not blow it out of proportion. As the populations of the south and west sides of Chicago continued suffering from heat illness, the availability of air conditioning became a matter of life and death. The Centers for Disease Control later said that 50% of the deaths related to the heat wave could have been prevented if they had had an air conditioner. Places where people could afford air conditioning did not suffer the same casualties as other parts of the city. 
Edmund Donahue put it bluntly, we're seeing deaths in the city, not in the suburbs. As nature turns Chicago into an oven, the city's geographical segregation of emergency services was leading to more fatalities. The temperature peaked at 104 degrees on the afternoon of the 13th. With the additional humidity and the heat trapped in and around the city, it felt like 125. By the end of the day, four deaths had been attributed directly to the heat wave. After 48 hours of continuous exposure to extreme heat, the body's defenses begin to break down. Hyperthermia sets in more rapidly and more severe symptoms appear, such as elevated heart rate and unconsciousness. As a result, in Chicago, the death rate rapidly increased over the evening. But the heat was taking a toll on more than just the human population. Reports filtered in from the farming regions around the Midwest. Huge flocks of poultry had perished on surrounding farms. 850 milk cows had died in Wisconsin, and so many more were ill that the entire state production of milk decreased by 25% on July 14th. In the city, pets were also suffering. The most susceptible were small birds kept in cages within overheating apartments. Dogs and cats with fur coats quickly became lethargic. Some people stayed indoors out of concern for their pets. They didn't want to leave the animals alone, but couldn't take them into the hot asphalt or out of their cages and pens. It was easier to stay inside, even if it could be fatal. As Friday the 14th saw temperatures of over 100 degrees for the third day, the city government still refused to declare a heat emergency. And Robert Skates was furious. He was the deputy chief paramedic monitoring the emergency services for the south side of the city. He said, I was noticing that it was exceedingly busy. Paramedics would get in the ambulance and not return until the next morning. Some people worked 28-hour days. Skates couldn't believe the city wasn't calling for a heat emergency, opening cooling centers, or even calling for more paramedics and firefighters. First responders were overworked in the extreme heat, often without a break. The director of one hospital said, the paramedics that were coming in here were so dehydrated that they were very close to being patients. Meanwhile, elderly residents in the Flannery Senior Housing Complex on the near west side were feeling the effects of the breakdown of services. They were trapped in their hot apartments. One resident, 71-year-old Mary Dingle, was already preparing for the worst. She said, I hope I go to the good place when I go. I don't see how I can last. I can hardly take this. Arthur Chambers was the head of the resident organization in the building, and he was ready to talk to reporters. The building's water supply had shut off due to the low pressure of so many hydrants being illegally opened. He told one reporter, it's very bad these people had to suffer. It was pitiful. We lost a couple of elderly people in this hot heat. Joseph Lasko's apartment on the northwest side was also unbearably hot, even with an open window. 
The fact that it was filled to the ceiling with old furniture and electronics didn't help alleviate the heat. He wasn't feeling well, and on the 14th, he missed his calendar notation in his journal. Across the city, paramedic calls went unanswered. People listened to busy signals or were put on hold for nearly 45 minutes waiting for an ambulance dispatcher. Most of these calls came from the southern precincts. While people on the north side went to the beach to cool down, the south side of the city was producing more victims by the hour. Chicago entered a fourth day of extreme heat on the morning of Saturday, July 15th. Medical examiner Dr. Donahue got a call early that morning, and his staff told him there were 40 new bodies in the morgue. He said, that was close to an all-time high for the medical examiner's office. When I got in that morning, it was 100 cases. It turned out to be a larger disaster than even I envisioned. Then, the morgue reached its maximum capacity. There were over 222 bodies in the coolers, and there was no more space. Ambulances and police cars lined up on the street outside the examiner's office, waiting to deliver corpses. The bodies were piling up outside the building, and the temperature was over 90 degrees. And the heat wave wasn't over yet. In fact, it had only just begun. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll explore the remaining days of the 1995 Chicago heat wave and whether the city is better prepared in the modern day. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.